The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. you free how you doing i'm leslie marshall sorry no ring light so uh no smoke and and mirrors and no lighting (laughs) i need a new one mine's all messed up keeps falling down uh anyway um happy happy tuesday uh, to you we have an incredible show uh coming up uh we're going to be talking about the big supreme court decision and arguments that are going to be made uh, for hours and are being made uh right now Uh, on the highest court in the land and how that could affect um, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people with regard to student debt. We're going to be talking about that and uh, stick around for that. But first, let's kick it by checking what's ripped. Well, as I mentioned, the Supreme Court case today, uh, they began hearing arguments. There were two cases, actually, not one, that challenges the president's $400 billion student loan forgiveness program. Now, critics of the president, his administration, and specifically this plan to cancel federal student loan debt for more than 40 million Americans say it's expensive, it's unfair, and abuse of executive power. I admit my loans are all paid for, and I wish somebody had done this for me, but we're in a very different time now. Supporters of the program protested outside Chief Justice John Roberts and other conservative justices, um, and, and they zeroed in on the issue of executive authority and separation of powers, the questioning whether Congress needs to sign off on such broad relief, as opposed to it being the you know, stroke of a pen uh, by the president with an executive order. Uh, Roberts asked Solicitor General Elizabeth uh, Elizabeth Prelegar, uh, who argues for the administration, he said, quote, Congress shouldn't have been surprised when half a trillion dollars is wiped off the books. We take very seriously the idea of separation of powers, he went on to say, and that power should be divided to prevent its abuse. I think we know where he's going to stand and where he's going to vote. It's a conservative court, right? This, uh, he was making a comparison to the Supreme Court's decision, by the way, to block former President Donald Trump's unilateral attempt to dismantle the DACA program for uh, undocumented immigrants brought to the United States when they were children. So uh, Prelegar, in turn, argued that the education secretary does have the authority to provide relief under the HEROES Act. Now, that's a law that in 2003 aimed at ensuring federal student loan borrowers would not be economically devastated during a national emergency. And you might say, well, where's the national emergency? Remember, at the time the executive order was written, we were in a national disaster. We were in a national emergency. It was called COVID and we were in a pandemic. And she said, quote, well, of course, we think Congress did address this expressly here. And Congress directed that in the context of a national emergency. That is the limitation of the HEROES Act. So the secretary can't invoke this whenever he wants. There has to be that predicate, war, a military operation or national emergency. We all know COVID, a lockdown, a pandemic are a national emergency. 
This is uh, this lawsuit, by the way, is a group of six GOP, very surprised, led states, haha, uh, today challenging the program before the highest court in the land, questioned by liberal judges to answer the critical question of how exactly they're harmed, because that's their claim, right? This is harming us. Okay. David Namias, who is a staff attorney with the Berkeley Center for Consumer Law and Economic Justice, said, and I quote, you can't just go to the court and say, I don't like this, or I think this might be a problem. In order to sue, you have to show that you are going to be threatened with a certain impending injury. Now, the states have alleged a future financial injury from lost revenue on student loan discharges. Fewer loans on the books, they say, would mean fewer taxes to collect. Now, the state of Missouri, they are arguing that it would be uniquely harmed by the impact of the large-scale debt cancellation on their Missouri's Higher Education Loan Authority, uh, which is Mohila. Uh, It's the nation's largest loan servicer, by the way. And the solicitor in Nebraska, James Campbell, argued on behalf of the states, he said the plan would cut into Mohila's operating revenue significantly. Now, the Biden administration says the state's claims are highly speculative and indirect, undermining their legal standing to bring the case in the first place. Justice Katanji Brown Jackson said, quote, Mohila isn't here. It has the ability to sue and be sued. It has been set up as a separate entity. Usually we don't allow one person to step into another's shoes and say, I think this person suffered harm, even if that harm is great. In other words, Marky Mark can't argue on my behalf if I'm not bringing the suit against the 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 uh, the, the said uh, you know uh, defendant, right? So just as Amy Comey Barrett, uh, Comey Barrett also pressed Campbell on Mohila's absence, asking, do you want to address why Mohila's not here? Campbell responded that Mohila isn't here because the state is asserting its interest. Mohila doesn't need to be here because the state has the authority to speak for them. Well, Barrett went on and said, if Mohila really is an arm of the state, why didn't you just strong arm Mohila and say you have to pursue the suit? In other words, Mohila is not suing. So if it's really hurting Mohila so much, where are they? Why aren't they in the court? Why aren't they suing? Why aren't they suing in conjunction with the state? The basic threshold is this. Is Missouri, is Nebraska, are these states injured today? Now, that's what South Texas College of Law professor Josh Blackman asked, and that's what's being asked, obviously, by the highest court, Supreme Court justices. Lower courts, legal scholars from across the ideological spectrum are divided on the question of injury, and that sets the stage for the justices to have the final say on whether the Biden debt relief plan inflicts clear harm on the state governments. Blackman said the answer is tricky because in recent years, the states have been given latitude, and this might be a case of the court scaling back on that broad authority, said, although I'm not sure. Now, the U.S. Department of Education last year cited a need to protect borrowers from excessive economic hardship during the pandemic, invoked emergency powers to waive repayment programs and terms for some federal student loans. Now, the agency offered to absolve as much as 20000 of federal debt for more than 40 million eligible borrowers, but this would go further, obviously. And that move drew an immediate legal challenge for Republican attorney generals in six states, Arkansas, Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, and South Carolina, who, by the way, if you just look at the uh, the, the money in those states, or if you look at the poverty level in those states, the high school dropout level, uh, the lower um, college uh, entrance uh, level, they need it perhaps even more than states you're not seeing in the courtroom today, right? They see it as a costly bailout to college students at the expense of other American taxpayers. 
quote, Joe Biden had no legal authority whatsoever. I think the larger issue is it's unfair to people who paid off their loans. It's unfair to people who didn't take out loans. That's Senator Eric Schmidt, Missouri's Republican former attorney general. He first brought the case. That's what he said to ABC News in an interview. And he added, it's adding to our debt. I think the reason why this case is before the Supreme Court and why Missouri and the other states are ultimately going to win is because Missouri has a loan servicing organization called Mohila that derives revenue from interest. Let me give you an alternative. What if you made college more affordable in your state, like community college in your state, like we're doing here in California, um, free so that people would be able to have education and get a better job and be off social programs, which are draining your state? Just an idea. Anyway, Mohila, a state created company which manages more than five million federal student loan accounts that total one hundred and forty eight billion. That's at the heart of the Missouri case as I mentioned earlier, and what federal appeals court singled out as a linchpin in their decision. Now, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, that's based in St. Louis, they put the Biden debt relief plan on hold last year. They cite in, they cite, cited that it threatened financial harm to Missouri explicitly because of its ties to Mohila. But then again, if one state out of 50 is affected, could the Supreme Court justices say that the Biden administration doesn't have the broad reaching authority if one out of one, one out of 50 states? Because Mohila is in Missouri, and that seems to be the big issue here, right? Mohila's contributed $6 million to state student aid programs in the current fiscal year, according to the Missouri Department of Higher Education Workforce Development. And uh, that law also requires Mohila uh, to pay $350 million to help improvements to state colleges and universities. Andrew Bailey, the new attorney general, said the court has identified it as a public entity that administers student loans. It provides college assistance programs for people across the state of Missouri. And so the state has an interest in it. So we're going to talk about this coming up in the second half of this hour. Let's rip another. Deanna Hardy of Marshfield, Wisconsin, is stocking up on pricier food items, pricier items, meat, eggs, salmon, and that's before her family's monthly food stamp benefits are drastically reduced. Why? Well, who's in charge now in the House? Republicans. She said, we're really going to struggle. That's what the mom of two told ABC News. We're going to have to end up going back to cheaper items, like noodles and processed stuff, because the meat, the dairy, fruits and veggies, well, it's expensive. She's nearly one of 30 million Americans who are bracing for a significant cut in their monthly food assistant. After nearly three years, the federal government is ending pandemic era payments on March 1st for low-income families on the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, known as SNAP. 18 states have already ended the extra SNAP benefits impacting approximately 12 million Americans. The remaining 32 states and jurisdictions of Washington, D.C., Guam, and the U.S. Virgin Islands will follow suit on March 1st. An average household will lose $95 a month, almost $100 a month for groceries. That's according to the study from the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. And depending on other factors, including family size and income, some recipients will lose more than that. I'm Leslie Marshall. That's what's ripped in the headlines, part one. We'll come back with part two and you right after this. We are back. I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back. Part two, part two part dose of uh, rip from the headlines. So uh, let's check it out. Checking out more what's ripped from the headlines. 
Uh, Congressman Ro Khan, a Democrat from California, who will hopefully be on the sh uh, show soon uh, about this and some other issues. Oh, next Friday. Thank you, Marky Mark. Uh, and, and Chris Deluzio, Democrat from Pennsylvania, introduced a bill this morning. It seeks to tighten safety measures for trains carrying hazardous materials and ensure, ensure that they're properly classified. By the way, if this sounds familiar... This is something Trump undid that was done already during the Obama administration. Now, this would be the first bill to be put forth by Congress after the derailment of a Norfolk Southern train carrying hazardous materials in East Palestine, <coughs> excuse me, Ohio this month. Now, the derailment forced Norfolk Southern to release and burn hazardous contents from some of the train cars, and that is prompting mounting concerns over health risks, toxic effects, toxic effects, excuse me. You know, in World War II, when we dropped atomic bombs, there are arguments that cancer, birth defects, and other health issues are still happening to this day, decades later, generations later. We see that with Chernobyl. We've seen that with Fukushima. And now people feel fear we're going to see this in Ohio. Now, the train that derailed there included 11 tank cars carrying hazardous materials, but it wasn't classified as a high hazard flammable train and therefore wasn't subject to stricter regulations. The legislation seeks to broaden the definition of what constitute a high hazard flammable train, lowering the threshold to meet the classification and ensuring that trains quarrying, excuse me, carrying hazardous materials are subject to stricter federal safety regulations. These high hazard flammable trains are not allowed to travel faster than 50 miles per hour, use special cars when transporting hazardous materials across country, and have newer braking equipment. That's according to the New York Times and their report there. Now, the Transportation Department currently applies these rules to trains with such materials in at least 20 consecutive cars or 35 cars total. And that legislation is proposed by Congressman Canna and Deluzio, and that would lower the threshold to one rail car. The legislation would also expand the list of hazardous substances and require rail carriers to report to the National Response Center, state officials, and local officials within 24 hours of when a train carrying toxic chemicals derails. So what is the big picture here? Governor Mike DeWine of Ohio, Republican, called on Congress this month to review how high hazardous trains are classified. Um, and this is what Congressman Connor said, quote, this is a moment where we need political leaders from all parties and from across the country to speak out loudly for better safety regulations and to acknowledge what so many Americans are going through. Um, and then uh, Congressman Deluzio said for too long, railroads have prioritized profit ahead of public safety and their workers, and it's time to regulate the railroads. Uh, the legislation, this legislation is an important step forward to finally strengthen our rail regulations and improve rail safety. Let's rip another. President Joe Biden is nominating Julie Sue, the current deputy and former California official. I mean, can I sidebar for a sec? I think it's just disgusting that a Republican member of Congress, and this is a different person, it's just, you know, coming into my mind about Judy Wu, Congresswoman Judy Wu, um, who's uh, the congresswoman for really to the left of me, seriously. Um, a very hardworking woman has done so much for her constituents and especially the Asian American or the API community, not just here in California, but on a national level. And to have a Republican congressman, one of her own peers, question her loyalty to the United States of America because of her ancestry. Do you, seriously, do you understand do you what this is akin to? I mean, not exactly akin, but you know, should, should we assume that all Germans are Nazis? 
and that all Germans' relatives killed my relatives and Jews and others in the Holocaust, the 11 million that were murdered? I mean, I mean to even suggest, because of somebody's ethnicity and ancestry, uh, because she is of Chinese descent, that she would be any, um, you know, any more or less, uh, but certainly any less loyal to her government as a an elected congresswoman who has been in Congress and served her nation and her constituency and the AAPI community as an American for other Americans for years. It is just such blatant prejudice and discrimination, and he's doubling down on it. Just make, I'm not even going to say his name. I don't want him to get any any press, okay? Any more press. Just just disgusting. And the fact there are people out there electing this man. You're all disgusting for electing him. He shouldn't be around next time. Anyway, I digress. President Biden is nominating Julie Sue, the current deputy and former California official, as his next labor secretary, replacing the department incumbent from uh, my, my home city, Boston, Mayor Marty Walsh. Anyway, uh, she is a civil rights attorney. She's former head of California's Labor Department. She was central to negotiations between labor and freight rail companies late last year, working to avert an economically debilitating strike. She also has worked to broaden employee training programs and crack down on wage theft. If confirmed by the Senate, she would be the first Asian American in the Biden administration to serve in the cabinet at a secretary level. And the president said today that she is a champion for workers. He said, quote, Julie is a tested and experienced leader who will continue to build a stronger, more resilient, and more inclusive economy that provides Americans a fair return for their work and an equal chance to get ahead. He continued, she helped avert a national rail shutdown, improved access to good jobs free from discrimination through my good jobs initiative, and is ensuring that the jobs we create in critical sectors like semiconductor manufacturing, broadband, and healthcare are good paying, stable, and accessible jobs for all. She was considered to lead the department when uh, the president won the White House, but instead became the department's deputy. Waltz announced his announced his intention to leave the administration earlier this month. He's going to uh, lead the National Hockey League Players Association, and he and she's going to serve as the acting secretary until the Senate acts on her nomination. Uh, the president had been under pressure from the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus and other Asian American and Pacific Islander advocates to select her to head the de- uh, department. But I got to say. You know, her her ethnicity and her race aside, I think she's an incredible choice for this position. The administration was the first in more than two decades to not have a cabinet secretary of AAPI descent. Despite its regular declarations, it was most diverse in history. Vice President Kamala Harris and a U.S. trade representative, Catherine Tai, are of AAPI descent, but they don't lead a cabinet department. So if she's confirmed, she would also expand the majority of women serving in the president's cabinet. She was confirmed by the Senate in her current role. In 2021, 50 to 47. We'll see what happens this time around. Let's rip another. 63% of countries around the world provide guaranteed paid parental leave for fathers. That's according to a new report that came out this morning from the World Policy Analysis Center. Why does this matter? Well, support is growing for paternity leave, but there's still a stigma attached to men who take time off to care for their children. Yet studies find numerous benefits for the economy, for fathers, for their partners, and of course, let's not forget, for the children. Uh, the UCLA Distinguished Professor Jody Heyman, founding director of the Policy Center there, said, there is widespread re- recognition that we don't solve gender equality without dads getting leave. The big picture, back in the 90s, only 46 countries had a paid leave policy for centers, for, for, for fathers, excuse me, largely high-income nations per the Policy Center's data. Now the number is nearly three times as high. 
and conspicuous, uh, conspicuously absent from that list, we are the United States. Worth noting, we, the United States, are also one of just seven countries in the world that do not have paid maternity leave, not just paternity leave. Other countries are Marshall Islands, Micronesia, Nauru, Palau, Papua New Guinea, and Tonga. Yeah, you know those leading nations. I'm Leslie Marshall. That's what's ripped from the headlines. Coming up our great guest, we're going to talk about student loan forgiveness and the arguments before the Supreme Court today in our nation's capital. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. Happy Tuesday. Welcome or welcome back. I'm Leslie Marshall here on the only true democracy in talk. Thank you for joining us and sticking around through it from the headlines for our great guest on this great topic that's extremely timely. I think a lot of you are paying attention, whether you're watching, you're reading, you're listening, you're following somewhere, even in the corner of your screen at work. What is going on with the Supreme Court? Because this is going to affect millions of people, and you might be one of them. I'm really pleased to have with us today Natalia Abrams. Natalia is president and founder of the Student Debt Crisis Center, the SDCC. They guest host and do a takeover of the Leslie Marshall Show every month, and we're glad to have them do that. By the way, it is not a hostile takeover. Uh, We invited them to take over. The SDCC is a 501c3 nonprofit that centers the needs and voices of borrowers, partners with allies to impact public policy and end the student debt crisis. And student debt is a crisis. And certainly, when we, when we were in a pandemic, we're going to talk about that. Check out their website. You, you find out a lot of information. You can educate yourself if you don't get to hear everything today and you got to get back to work. Or if you miss them when they take over once a month, go to studentdebtcrisis.org. Their handle on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook is at debtcrisisorg. That's at debtcrisisorg. And Natalia, follow her. Her handle, at Natalia Abrams, that's N-A-T-A-L-I-A-A-B-R-A-M-S. Natalia, thank you for joining us. More than a pleasure to have you and I on at the same time together. (laughs) (laughs) Or to have you on with me at the same time. Appreciate it. Thank you, Leslie. A pleasure to be here. Um, And I know that you were at the uh, Supreme Court today. Um, I I want to um, talk about this. I mean, there's so much, you know, going on, you know, with this, and I, I don't, I, I have so many questions, so I'm sorry if I'm all over the map with this, okay? Um, but first of all, we have people protesting on both sides. I'm, I'm, I'm certain that you saw that, you know, as we see whenever people are protesting before the Supreme Court, they're carrying signs, uh, they're protesting. Uh, some are urging the justices to back the president's effort to cancel approximately $400 billion in student loan debt, and then uh, there are others. You know, for those that look at the lower court ruling from, you know, predominantly Republican leaning or conservative leaning courts, um, is that a huge concern, the composite of this court and even some of the questions that are being posed? Because this is a very conservative Republican, if you will, leaning Supreme Court. So, yes, I mean, with that question, yes, we are concerned about the makeup of the court and the partisan nature of the court. I would say we shouldn't be because the law is completely on our side. The uh, the Republican side or the other side does not have standing in this case. Uh, we saw Trump appointed justices on the appellate courts allow this to go through on appeal and shouldn't have gone to the Supreme Court because of the legal the legality of it. 
But yes, there is concern with the court, even though the law is on our side. Now, I understand some big names uh, on the Democratic side, Senator Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, um, and uh, Robert Menendez, also Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, Congresswoman Judy Chu, um, uh, all support uh, addressed supporters um, of the plan uh, from the steps of the Supreme Court today. Were you there for that? Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, I was there bright and early at 6 a.m. for hours at the Supreme Court. And, you know, you mentioned people against, I think I saw a few, but they were drowned out by the hundreds and hundreds of people there to support student debt cancellation. This was very much a rally for um, student loan borrowers, not anything against. And it was just amazing to see so many faces, hear so many stories, and especially hear from our lawmakers who have been on our side for many years, like Senator Warren and Senator Sanders. During Rip from the Headlines, I kind of broke it down a little bit that, you know, the argument is by the Biden administration that the president doesn't have to go through Congress to get this approved. He can do this like he did with an executive order uh, because of the HEROES Act. And the HEROES Act basically, um, you know, not only gives him, but gives the Department of Education, the head of Department of Education, not broad authority, but authority within certain parameters. And one of the parameters is, you know, um, during an emergency, during a crisis, during a pandemic, which COVID certainly was. And there are, you know, millions of Americans who are, uh, you know, uh, uh, affected by that. And students could be argued are one of the segment of the population, women and minorities or others, that were disproportionately uh, affected by this. And uh, I mean, you know, we certainly don't want people in this country going to hell in a handbag economically because that drives the economic system down <laughs> to hell with it. Um, when when we, you know, when I look at this and, you know, what we talked about ripping right the headlines if if I put like my legal cap on for a second, it really seems to come down to Missouri. And and to me, as an American, one state or one fiftieth of our nation shouldn't dictate uh, what happens to the rest of us, because Missouri is the only state that has that program and that, you know, they're 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 bringing, you know, up at the at the court. And I have to say, it's a cold day in hell when I agree with Amy Comey Barrett. But I, I do agree with, I do agree with her line of questioning when she said, "Well, where are they?" Because that particular program is not suing uh, the Biden administration and is not fighting this. Rather, the state of Missouri is on their behalf, which you re you really can't do. Like I explained, I can't go, I can't go to court and say I'm I'm fighting your battles. You have to be there. Yeah, and. We saw that Mojia, the loan company you're talking about, pulled out, you know, wanted to make sure they were not associated with the case. And I want to ask these state attorneys general, why are you fighting against your own people, your own constituents? There are, you know, 20 million people that could have total debt forgiveness or debt cancellation. As Ayanna Presley says, it's not forgiven because you did nothing wrong, but de debt cancellation and 40 million people will benefit. And the Missouri is one of those states. So I, if I was a Missouri resident, I would be very upset with my state for get, for making it so we everyone doesn't have debt cancellation. I don't know. I was taught when I was a little kid that life's not fair sometimes. It's not going to be fair for everyone. I don't understand how we can be seeing this from people that should be on the side of their own constituents. No, I know. I agree with you. I mean, you know, we, you know, we can laugh. We can say life certainly isn't uh, fair because, you know, uh, there's so many things when you talk about fair, I'm about talk lack of fairness to the people. What is remarkable to me is the states that are fighting this and are suing have some of the lowest education rates, 
have some of the highest dropout rates, and have some of the highest poverty rates, which could help be not done away with, but corrected or reduced greatly by education. And there are so many people within their states that can't afford education. So they won't even get into the game. Never mind they got into the game and they can't pay it off. So it, 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 this to me just screams that these states and, and, and you know behind this lawsuit are being purely political and not caring about the welfare of their state economically or their people educationally or economically. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I've been doing this for well over a decade. And I still remember when Dr. Susan Rice spoke at a conference, a community college conference, you know, education is vital to our national security. You know, for our country to get stronger and bright, we need to have a brighter, more educated society. That should be something that every lawmaker is fighting for, not fighting against. And I agree, we, we can barely even pass free community college in our country, let alone free college, but that is part of ending the whole student debt crisis. Can- canceling the debt is only one prong in this multi-prong effort to actually have free and accessible and quality education in our country. I know my, my best friend lives in London and she was telling me like, you know, if her kids go to Oxford, it's 9,000 a year. I mean, it's still not cheap if you're, you know, you're poor, but that's much easier to borrow and pay back. Um, you know, it's absolutely insane. You know, pe- I live in California and people go, oh, well, if you're an in-state resident, you get a break. Well, tuition at UCLA, I mean, I think without housing is $19,000 a year. You got you see, Yeah, I thought you had this is, Yes, this is, I paid it off. I'm one of the lucky ones, but this is what oh, I Oh, yeah, you're right. See, that's from UCLA. Housing, right? It was yep. 22 grand, 19,000. And it was increased. Without you know, housing. It, yeah, this is, yeah, no, it's expensive. Yeah, well, at least you, you I, I have two teenagers who are freshmen in high school right now. And right now, I'm just hoping my son will graduate high school, never mind getting into college. <laughs> my daughter, I think she'll get into a place like UCLA. That's another story. But let's talk about the People's Rally for Student Debt Cancellation. This was composed of over 20 different organizations that were in attendance at the rally, including your organization, the Student Debt Crisis Center, the SDCC, the NAACP, the American Federation of, uh, of Teachers. Um, do you want to talk to us about some of these organizations? Because to your point, this isn't just about debt cancellation. This is part of a painting, and that's just one of the colors in this picture. Absolutely. And I just want to give a shout out to those organizations, NAACP, Student Borrower Protection Center, Young Invincibles, all of the unions that came out. This was one of the best coalition efforts everyone. And it was because of everyone coming together and doing their part that we were able to do this. And they, you know, We are so dedicated to solving the whole puzzle and we will not go away until we see that. And it's just, it's really amazing after so long to have so many partners and COVID really did that. COVID exacerbated the student debt crisis for so many Americans and that brought on a coalition of over 500 organizations that fought to cancel student debt. I want to talk briefly about uh, Shanna Hayes, 34 She attended the protest. She borrowed, former math teacher, has a master's, over 150,000 in loans. She was a Pell Grant recipient for part of her education. She might qualify for 20,000 in federal student loan forgiveness. For some people, it's not wiping it away. It's taking a chunk of it away. I was a Pell Grant recipient along with many other loans and grants. Uh, I knew how hard I know how hard, like you said, to pay it back. It, it really was. We're going to take a quick break. We will be back with our guests and we'll be back with you. Uh, we are talking about the decision the Supreme Court is facing. Uh, we're talking about student debt cancellation. It's a student debt crisis and it's an American crisis. Stick around. 
We are back on Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back. Only true democracy in talk. Thank you for being with us. We also thank Natalia Abrams, our guest today, president and founder of the Student Debt Crisis Center, the SDCC. And they do a non-hostile, very friendly takeover of the show as guest <laughs> host here at the Leslie Marshall Show every month. Check out their website, studentdebtcrisis.org. On, the, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, their handle at debtcrisis.org. Org and Natalia's Twitter handle is at Natalia Abrams at N A T A L I A A B R A M S. Natalia, thank you for uh, holding. Um, welcome back. We we're talking. You were there uh, today about what is happening, you know, on the steps uh, of the Supreme Court and what is happening inside of uh, the Supreme Court. Uh, there was a report released yesterday by Senator Elizabeth Warren from my home state of Massachusetts on the effects failing to uphold the president's relief measure and 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 what that you know what kind of an impact that would have on millions of people that have borrowed money uh she's been a very uh, a vocal lawmaker pushing for student loan forgiveness and she's asked nearly 20 advocacy groups including the NAACP and uh debtors union the debt collective to tell her how failure to deliver debt relief would impact their members so for people that aren't as familiar Talk about how this would impact people if the Supreme Court does not rule in favor of the Biden administration and in favor of people who are students and who have so much of this debt and had so much of this debt during a pandemic, during a crisis. Yeah, absolutely. So we were part of that report as well with Senator Warren, and we surveyed at Student Debt Crisis Center. Uh, borrowers through the COVID pandemic over six times. And what we found was that the uh, payment pause was by far the best, most impactful relief that Americans received. Um, And that's the reason that Biden wants to cancel student debt. They know that in the past when the HEROES Act has been used, uh, so many borrowers, instead of returning to repayment, default. They're not able to make payments after a pause in their payment. Taking the debt away for most people or readjusting their loans to a smaller amount, the hope is that more people can actually actively pay back their debt. It can sound contradictory to think canceling debt means people paying their debt, but that's exactly why the Biden administration did it. We know that borrowers have used their pandemic savings, uh, as I put in air quotes, for basic needs. We're talking about paying the rent, paying for their children's medication, paying, buying groceries. It's not, you know, no one that comes to us is traveling on lavish vacations or purchasing fancy purses. This is really to be able to just get by with the basic needs. And everyone in our country, rich in the world, deserves to be able to afford their basic needs. So we are just, we're talking about a lifeline for 40 million Americans to be able to continue along with their life as we recover from this pandemic. And while we may be pulling out of the COVID pandemic, the economic impacts are going to last for years and decades beyond. No, absolutely. And I know there are people out there that are misinformed when it comes to who uh, would be benefiting from this, uh, mostly. Um, and I want to share this data from the Education Department. They found that 81% of all applications, all, uh, for debt relief uh, before the online form closed back in November came from the bottom 80% of congressional districts based on average income. So in other words, poorer people. And the bottom 80% of those districts have more borrowers eligible for relief than the top 20%. Because I think a lot of people think, 
what are you kidding me? They got a college degree. They got some high paying job. And, you know, and they and before they got that, you know, they got this student debt and we're going to help them. Those aren't the people, the people that can pay it aren't applying. It's the people that are that that weren't continue uh, to struggle or to suffer, like you say, pulling from their savings uh, just to pay for necessities. Absolutely. Um, And, you know, rich kids rarely, if ever, take out student loans, but some do. Maybe they pay it back in a fraction of the time of those who can't afford to do so. So they won't take that full 10 years or 20 years to pay back. They'll pay back in two or three and not accrue the same type of interest. I mean, that's the biggest problem that borrowers talk to us about is interest. It's the compound capitalized interest. And to address another claim we hear from the other side is, you know, you took out the loan. Why can't you pay it back? So many borrowers have paid back their initial balance and then some. And because of that compounding capitalized interest, they owe, you know, double from what they initially borrowed and more even after 10 years of paying it back. Last time I checked, I'm old enough to remember when the United States government bailed out an entire industry called the automobile industry. So, I mean, I I mean, we don't have a crystal ball. You don't know what's going to happen in the future. Um, and you know this. You know this isn't just. You know this isn't one segment of the population. This goes across various segments of the population throughout different states. Um, it, it's yeah. It, it just it blows my mind. I mean, it's not to me. It's not people out there that are doctors that are applying. You know, for this forgiveness because they have a job. You know that pays them enough that they can pay it back. Uh, that's a very uh, very different different situation. So so folks know here very quickly. How did this issue wind up at the Supreme Court? Because some people, you know, wonder how it even got this far. And you had touched upon it briefly at the beginning of our interview today. So, yeah, I mean, first off, it's from so many student loan borrowers speaking up and sharing their story. I, that That's what got me into this. Um, that's what got so many organizations into it. But then we did see um, the pandemic just absolutely explode the need for student debt cancellation. And we saw so many lawmakers that hadn't before come on, come on board to this issue. And most importantly, the president of the United States. That was a wonderful thing to say today. I had the opportunity to speak at the rally that we finally have the president of the United Department of Justice fighting for student loan borrowers. And that's huge. So even if we don't get the desired outcome at the court, we are only at the beginning of the end to see full relief for all student loan borrowers. And for people that don't know how the Supreme Court works, there's not going to be a decision in the next couple of days. They make all the decisions by June, you know, before the summer and their little uh, recess there, their vacations. Um, you know, so e- even though there's, uh, you know, a lot of uh, breath being held and fingers being crossed, it's going to be months before we actually learn the outcome of this case. Uh, have there been any indicators that make you feel more positive or less positive based on questions that you've heard uh, that are being, you know, leaked out uh, from reporters and shared, you know, with reports that are being asked by the Supreme Court? I think I'm just still really focused on the fact that it's legal. You know, I, I, I don't my I joke that my crystal ball is broken. And so I don't know what the justices will say. But I do know, I do have a lot of faith in our president. And I think he's heard voices of borrowers loud and clear that he's not going to go away on this issue. And we need to stay clear and focused right now on plan A, which is passing this through the Supreme Court. And to all the student loan borrowers out there listening, we got to stay loud. It's again, because of you that we are here and we can get the more that we'll show that we have public opinion on our side, the more relief we'll see in the future. 
You talked about people pulling from their savings to pay for things. One of the things I also am old enough to remember is when there were so many mortgages foreclosed and what that did not only mm-hmm. to people, what that did to our economy. And if people can't pay for their homes, um, you know, because they've run out of savings to bo- to borrow from to just pay for those kinds of necessities, because I think for most of us, uh, our rent or our mortgage are usually, I know for me, it's my biggest bill, right? My, my, you know, my mortgage is my biggest bill. And that's probably the first one most people pay because it's like, okay, paid the mortgage, I can stay in my house. Now people go into, you know, utilities and food. And, um, but if, if, if you can't keep that roof over your head, that, that's gonna, that hurts an economy. That, that, that hurts an economy. And certainly it hurts. Absolutely. You should uh, join our organization. You're taking my talking points right out of my mouth. (laughs) You know, this impacts all Americans in the sense that if you have a home you want to sell, you're not going to have a buyer to buy that home. Absolutely. And, you know, if this will impact the entire economy, and it already has been, and we've seen an increase, you know, an increase in the economy by borrowers having payments on hold, we need to continue that. We need this crisis once and for all and then the you know the borrower side of the crisis then we're going to move to making college free for all americans remember if banks take back your house they sell it for a lot less and all the people living in that neighborhood happened happened to me my house value went went down the down the tube and that you know down the uh, you know uh, the, not to the pit of hell but you know definitely dropped greatly we have less than 60 seconds left and i want to give you that what is the message that you want people to come away with today take the floor. I have so much hope. Again, from doing this for so long, it's given me a lot of perspective that we were lucky to have Senator Warren fighting for us 10 years ago, and she was frankly the only one. And now we have just, you know, over 100 lawmakers that have signed on to the resolution, the President of the United States, the Department of Justice. What more could a girl ask for? So very, you know, thrilled to see the amount of support that we have. And then especially to the main VIPs, the student loan borrowers. This is because of you and all of us, those 20 plus orgs that were at the People's Rally today will not stop fighting for you, I promise. And, you know, it's a testament to you, Natalia, as president and founder of the Student Debt Crisis Center, because when you founded the SDCC, you didn't know this would be the future either. Um, so hats off to you, girl. I love a strong woman who says, I'm not going to stop till I get what I want. And hopefully before June, <laughs> we will. Not you just get what you want, but the American people get what they want. Uh, because the majority of American people support this. And certainly so many millions of people need it in our nation. Website again for the SDCC is studentdebtcrisis.org. Their handle on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter is at debtcrisisorg at Debt Crisis O-R-G, and Natalia's Twitter handle is at Natalia Abrams, N-A-T-A-L-I-A-A-B-R-A-M-S. Check it out. You want to know more? Some of you some of you out there would benefit from this. Check it out. Natalia, thank you for being with us. I know how exhausted you must be. I know you've got kids and you were, you know, at the, the, the rally. <laughs> so much going on. So thank you for taking the time. 